Welcome to the Compounding Center Connections, where we talk about different health conditions with our partner practitioners. I'm your host, Jay Gill, the owner and a compounding pharmacist from the Compounding Center in Leesburg, Virginia. At the Compounding Center, we partner and collaborate with practitioners, create custom medications to help our patients get better. Joining us today is Dr. Ebony Cornish, Dr. Cornish is from the Amen Clinic in Western Virginia. At the Amen Clinics, Dr. Cornish specializes in treatment of Lyme disease. In today's webinar, we'll be discussing an important topic, unlocking the mysteries of Lyme disease. Welcome, Dr. Cornish. Well, could you, thank you, Jay. Thank you for the warm welcome. Um, could you please just uh, introduce yourself uh, to our listeners and viewers? All right, so you did a great job. But as you know, Dr. Cornish and I work um, in rest and I've been with the Amen Clinic. I've been working with the Amen Clinic for years now, um, collaborating on the treatment of chronic infections, autoimmune disease, pants, pandas, um, functional medicine, among many other conditions with their patients. And not only that, I have my um, private practice patients who have now merged to become um, Amen Clinic patients because of my focus in chronic infections, especially um, tick-borne diseases among other conditions. So this is something I'm definitely passionate about. Um, I know you do a lot of work with our patients as well and in honor of Lyme Disease Awareness Month, you know, I wear my Lyme green and it's also <laughs> Mental Health Awareness Month. So we hope to merge those two months together for you today as we close out May. Well, I'm very exci excited to have this talk with you today. And I know you're gonna be sharing some slides uh, with the webinar attendees. And those uh, that are listening to us on our podcast will make sure to have the link to the slides in the description section. So shall we begin, uh, get started? Yes, yes. Um, did you yeah. want to go ahead and uh, perhaps pull up your slides? Um, All right, I sure will. As you do that, I think we should take some time and at least discuss some basics of Lyme disease and how it's transmitted. Can you talk about that a little? Of course. So, so the thing about Lyme disease that makes it so unique is that it's a uh, a vector-borne illness typically transmitted by the deer tick, all right, which is with the reservoir host. So after, you know, usually comes out more in the spring and summer months, but we've seen it year, we see it year round. So the um, adult, they add, they latch their eggs from the larva in stage one, and it feeds off the blood of either the white, the white-tailed mouse, mouse, which is the initial reservoir. And in the next phase, which is during the late spring, the fed larva falls off of the mouse reservoir and transforms into what we call a dormant nymph. And wait till you see how small these are. And then that's the trouble. That's when the nymphal um, activity begins and it attaches to new hosts that can be deer and possibly human. Um, and this is the stage, that nymph stage, that's the most um, one responsible or the transmission of Lyme disease and look how small it is. Yeah. So, wow. you know, that's the mature and look how small the nymph are. So less than 50% of patients even recall having 
um, a tick bite or a rash, which is which is interesting because if you see the size of it, um, that makes sense. Yeah, wow, that is so small. Um, now, yeah, this is uh, like your slide says, acute Lyme. Um, you know, we have a lot of patients um, in common that you know have chronic Lyme. So, can you can you talk to us the difference between chronic Lyme and acute Lyme? That is um, something that these listeners and viewers need to really understand. So I'm a member um, of what's called ILATS, which stands for International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. Um, I'm a board member of our educational foundation. And one thing about our organization is that we published evidence-based um, peer review guidelines that differentiate the term acute Lyme disease versus chronic Lyme disease. Um, in some places you may see chronic Lyme disease labeled as post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. But we really do know that this is a very persistent infection. So in our guidelines in 2014, where we said, you know, you need to treat patients based on clinical judgment, it's usually when patients are first exposed. And its opinions may differ based on um, the length of treatment and the dosages of treatment. But then we have that patient who's been treated and they still have symptoms that could be months to years later. And that's typically in about 10 to 50% of patients who have persistent Lyme disease. So what that means is that this process, they present, they get treated, and then later when their body is under stress, may that be emotional stress, physical stress, something that compromises their immune system, it flares back up again. And then the practicing clinician has to determine what it is to do. If you're gonna treat or you're gonna monitor um, and you review the risk and benefits of long-term treatment because there have been studies to show and support that. So that's in those cases who have that persistent ongoing illness after being um, having their initial round of treatment. Got you. So, you know, I've heard people say that um, Lyme is a clinical diagnosis. Um, and you touched upon that a little bit. Could you, what does that mean? So when we say clinical, that means what you show me in the office. So when I'm a member, as I said, of ILADS, and we know that it's, you know, an epidemic around the world. And when we train doctors um, as a part of our physician training program, and also we do yearly fundamental courses, we stress the importance of understanding the clinical signs and symptoms associated with tick-borne diseases like Lyme and other co-infections. So we typically provide standardized questionnaires for patients um, that answer key questions. And so that as a doctor, you have a differential diagnosis um, based on the patient's responses. And of course you utilize other types of testing to support the diagnosis, but it really requires um, that you have a basic understanding of some of the symptoms associated with this infection because that's when we treat, you know, it's based on your assessment in the office, what the patient tells me, their history, 
their physical examination. Now, so so what are your thoughts on the different uh, uh, different testing and diagnosis of Lyme disease? So in general, uh, one thing we should all be aware of is that there are definitely two different schools of thought regarding Lyme disease diagnoses and testing. Um, the IDSA, which is the Center for Disease Control, and it's kind of the standard um, powers that be, so to speak, that develop the guidelines for all practicing clinicians as it relates to infectious diseases. Um, they state that Lyme is only acute. You know, you have to present after tick bite and rash, and you should get better between one day up to two weeks of antibiotics. And it, it's if you're still ill, it's called that post-Lyme syndrome because chronic Lyme doesn't exist. And I just kind of told you more about what we believe. Um, and there are a lot of different testing because what we find those standard tests like LabCorp and Quest, when you do that two-tier testing approach, which is an ELISA and then in a Western blot, your doctor may draw one of those if you have a question of Lyme. The literature shows it misses about 40 to 50% of patients who really, in fact, have the, have the actual infection. So it's a lot of false negatives um, with standard testing like LabCorp and Quest. And because of that, most Lyme specialists tend to rely on other testing that are, have been shown and researched and shown to be a little more um, sensitive. And those are things like IgenX, where you can look at um, PCR in your urine and blood, or you can do blood cultures as well. And um, those tend to be a little better as it relates to um, finding and determining that, that diagnosis. MDL Labs also does it, um, you know, more sensitive testing. So you really want to find a specialist who will not just do that Western standard, um, you know, lab core quest, which is insensitive, but more in-depth analysis. Gotcha. Thank you. So, you know, going back to that image of that tiny little tick, um, it makes me want to also ask you the questions, you know, are there other infections that can be transmitted with a tick? Yeah. And before I go for these are just for um, the viewers of the webinar and for the slide. So, you know, the different types of testing options. Um, and so here are some of what we call co-infections. Um, and they are also transmitted by the deer tick and they have several names. And this is just a few, um, one of which is called Babesia, Babesiosis. It's a tick-borne parasite. So it presents with things like uh, night sweats, daytime sweats, depression, anxiety, some mood changes difficulty, um, kind of taking a deep breath, fatigue, fevers. And then um, Bartonella is another vector-borne illness. In both Babesia and the Bartonella, they attack the red blood cell. So the cell that gives you bleeding, right? And so with Bartonella, some of the unique features are like pains on your soles of your feet. Um, some people have these stretch marks that kind of look like striae, like they like, they're mm. called, they look like cat scratches and we call them striae. Um, and also other things we can see with Bartonella, a lot of brain fog, which you can see also with, you know, all of the co-infections, but specifically a lot of uh, confusion or numbness, tingling um, with that disorder. 
Ehrlichiosis and anaplasma, they're also tick-borne diseases. And um, I typically find patients have similar symptoms because a lot of them overlap. With Borrelia, you think of Borrelia burgdorferi, um, you think of joint pain, muscle pain, fatigue. Anytime you have kind of like a, a fever in the summertime, and this holds true for all of the co-infections and especially with Ehrlichia. It's a lot of patients present with very high fevers and muscle aches and fatigue. And one thing, Jay, that I see with these patients, they have liver um, issues. Their liver tests come back abnormal um, out of the blue. And then um, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever is another tick-borne co-infection. And typically patients may present with a huge rash, um, specifically in the palms and soles. But we also know there are other forms of Rocky Mountain or Brachetia, which produces Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And some patients present with minimal symptoms. Jay, they may just come and be fatigued and have like joint pain. And um, the last one I listed here, and there are others, is mycoplasma. And patients have kind of a fatigue, musculoskeletal symptoms, cognitive issues. And the interesting thing about mycoplasma pneumonia, um, it's very common, it's very commonly transmitted because not only is it a tick-borne disease, it can also be an airborne illness. So a lot of times what I'll find is that I'll screen a person for all these different infections, Lyme disease, Borrelia burgdorferi, and all these co-infections that I, met, I mentioned here, and a lot of patients have had exposure to mycoplasma pneumonia and aren't symptomatic. So that's just one of the more common um, diagnoses or exposures that I see among my population of patients. So, you know, um, it makes me wanna, uh, before we jump into talking about some treatment options, question just, I just wanna, what makes it so hard for some patients to keep you know, uh, your immune system or Lyme in re remission, kind of, you know, keep it at bay. What makes it so hard? And um, when we published um, the evidence, um, the International Lyme Associated Diseases Society, we mentioned um, a lot of things about why Lyme um, vector-borne disease in general is so resistant. And it's a few reasons. For Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the spirochete, the organism um, that we refer to as Lyme disease, it, it has the ability to change its form. So what will happen is it'll be in a, what's called an active, or for viewers, it's just the, the active living um, bug swimming around. And then when it's under attack or depending on how long someone's been um, infected, it can change to more of a, what we call cyst form. So the way I always describe it to patients is like you have this active infection and then it goes into hiding. So it protects itself with like a little capsule um, and it allows it to become resistant to antibiotics during that phase, unless you're taking those agents that actually can get through that cyst. I don't know if you've ever heard of people call like superbugs, so to speak, where you know you take all these antibiotics, they become resistant, or they just never get that bug or that infection in remission. And that kind of physiology almost holds true with with Borrelia burgdorferi because it becomes either a cyst form, and it also can become 
cell wall deficient. And then it also has the ability to hide out in the immune system because a lot of patients with tick-borne diseases end up having a compromised immune system. And in that process, Borrelia burgdorferi, it's so interesting because it actually can get its DNA into the host or the patient's DNA, and then it makes the patient's DNA look foreign. So your body starts creating antibodies to your own cells. So these, and then at the same time, if you're dealing with any of those co-infections I mentioned earlier, um, and you're just only treating for Borrelia burgdorferi, you're going to miss the mark. You know, and that's another thing I see so often in my patients. Wow. It's almost <laughs> scary to the point. Uh, um, so let's talk about some, uh, some treatment options. And if you could also touch upon any newer uh, treatment options that, are, uh, that you've come across or started to utilize. All right. So okay. here are some of the um, very common treatment options that we have. You can do antibiotics. You know, we have prophylactic recommendations for prophylaxis when someone shows up with a tick bite or a rash. And I didn't get to show um, earlier, but one of the things that happens is you can have different types of what they call that erythema migraines rash. So it can be red with a bullseye or it can just be flat and red, um, or it can just sometimes just be multiple different rashes. So typically when you see a person who's had an exposure and in general in any doctor's office and you've had a rash, you'll be giving some, given some sort of um, prophylactic treatment. And then as you get more um, severe, or later stages when you start having more neurological symptoms. Um, one common one is Bell's palsy where these patients look like they've had a stroke. It has like facial drooping. Um, and when they start having a lot of the cognitive problems, they may be more candidates for more um, different layers of antibiotics, multiple antibiotics at times, sometimes IV antibiotics. And when you're treating Lyme and co-infections, um, that we mentioned earlier, you'll need different types of protocols. For Babesia, um, the one I mentioned that was a tick-borne parasite, you may even need anti-parasitic medications for those, um, for those infections. So you really have you know, to look at the different treatment options as far as formal types of medications. So you can have the prophylaxis, antibiotics when someone shows up with a tick bite or a rash. You can have the antibiotics, you can have antibiotic combinations. And then for the severe neurological cases, you can have the infusions. And then you have a whole host of herbals because not everyone actually needs long-term antibiotics when you're dealing with vector-borne illnesses. And I know in my practice, I tend to use, I have that kind of get in, get out mentality where if I can treat you and get you into a stable status as soon as possible, and then transition you over to herbals for maintenance, that's kind of my preference because we know how long-term antibiotic administration can damage the gut. So we have to always make sure we have a good functional medicine protocol for these patients for your gut. Um, and we also want to make sure we give herbals as alternatives. And these are some of the 
really common companies. I kind of pick and choose between um, the companies listed here, Bio, um, Byron Beyond Balance and Research Nutritionals, Nutramedics, Byron Wright, Biocide. And those are all different herbal companies um, that create formulas to treat Lyme. But then, like you said, we have new things. And, it's, and the reason I love being in this field, Jay, is because we're always learning. If yeah. you ever go to a Lyme specialist and they say, I know all there is to know about tick-borne disease, run, run out their <laughs> office, run away immediately because we are learning. And the way I practice yeah. Lyme now is not even the way when we met years ago that I started. Yeah. We evolved. And you have to stay in training. And so, you know, I know you're familiar with a lot of these newer treatments as well, because I work with you and you help my patients so much um, with them. So like disulfiram, that was game changing. That's um, the traditional med we use for alcoholism and abuse. And they found research that showed it was beneficial for persistent Borreliosis, and it has been a game changer in my practice, especially in those patients who've had really prolonged clinical courses or have come to me from other doctors and just failed other treatment modalities. And then, as I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of things that are being published on herbals. And that's what I find is fascinating because some of the studies, Jay, have even went as far as to look at herbals, plants, and compare them to antibiotics. And um, some of the ones I listed here, like cryptolepis and Japanese knotweed, studies show that they were actually more effective than a lot of the common antibiotic regimens we use at the killing of stationary and resistant forms of Lyme. Um, they found that cryptolepis was also treating that co-infection I referred to earlier, Bartonella. So I, I mean, that was groundbreaking that you now have evidence that's peer-reviewed showing plants being, you know, what you have to think about it, meds come, drug come from plant sources, right? And then the other game changer for a lot of my Lyme patients who have the severe neurological changes and especially my pediatric patients who have like other illnesses like um, autoimmune pandas, which is a pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndrome. They have found a lot of benefit with what's called clotrimazole, which is an antifungal. And we have to use compounding pharmacies like you to get a, a long acting form of it. And then methylene blue, the dye which you also have to utilize the compounding center to formulate. And those two have been so, so great. And it was published at treating that resistant Bartonella. Hmm. So the study actually showed those two together, clotrimazole, methylene blue, Jay, they actually had a better performance in that resistant form of Bartonella than antibiotics. So those papers, the disulfiram paper, the herbal papers have been amazing. And those have been reached in the last few years. And then there are also a lot of studies on the biofilm that are being published. Because as I told you guys, 
you know, Lyme becomes resistant because it's able to create this like protective um, capsule, which we call a biofilm um, form. And it's tons of literature about new ways to treat um, biofilm. And I can't wait to see what comes out next because I'm always waiting. I'm always. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, uh, you, are at the, uh, you are at the forefront of new therapies and what would you say to a doctor who is uncomfortable about treating a patient with a Lyme disease, uh, disease diagnosis? And, and that's a majority of physicians, you know, yes. because of the fact that there are the two schools of thought. And, you know, Lyme disease does require that we use our clinical judgment a lot of times. You know, in medicine, we're so used to black and white. Yeah. Well, tick-borne disease doesn't have that. And it, it causes you to kind of step out of that kind of comfort level, Jay, and really rely on the research that's available. Um, but luckily, our organization, um, ILADS, this year we've expanded what we call a physician training program where we have physicians from all around that world who train with Lyme literate experts via telemedicine, who can tell them all the basics, can have them shadow patients. Um, and we also open it up to nurse practitioners this year as well. So it's really about looking at certain sources, you know, trying to do the research, knowing what the laws are in your state, and more importantly, getting training, you know, or getting yeah. someone who's already doing it. And that's what I did. You know, when I started, I worked with people who are actually already in the field and in leadership. And then I just built my way from there because you can't, it's, it's, a, it's a hard disease to treat alone. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's, let's keep moving in. How about we talk about Lyme disease and its uh, impact on the nervous system? You know, you hear the term neural Lyme and uh, could you talk about that a little bit? Um, sure. So, one thing we know is that Lyme is what we call the great imitator. Um, and it mimics so many things. So that's why when I tell patients or doctors as well, nebulous symptoms, people just come up and show up with just a lot of random complaints. Really listen, don't dismiss them because I see it on a daily basis. Patients who have things like that are listed here anywhere from attention deficit problems to Bell's palsy to multiple sclerosis, um, chronic fatigue syndrome. And the list is endless of some of the other disorders that are also shown to be associated with that actually are Lyme disease. So as it relates to the brain, the nervous system, this is an area I'm very passionate about as well. I mean, I don't know if you see how excited I am. Um, um, but it also can cause, you know, neurological Lyme symptoms, poor balance, patients present with dizziness, um, that brain fog I told you about, that lightheadedness. People tell me all the time, I can't drive in cars. I can't ride in cars. I get motion sickness like never before. Um, one thing is like chronic fatigue, like just not just a normal tire, right, Jay? Because we all work, we're all tired, but when you yeah. just can't get out of bed, you know, or you may find yourself just having unusual sleep patterns or narcolepsy. 
Um, tremors, that's another very common um, neurological symptom of Lyme. Um, patients can have tremors. I work with a lot of neurologists and I've seen um, patients with Parkinsonian-like features and multiple sclerosis um, presentation and they've had um, neurological Lyme disease. And um, just find, can't find words, you know, like some people just, that can be a, a mild complaint. Like I, I just, I can't figure out what I was gonna say. I forgot the next sentence. Um, so, you know, and those concentration problems. So, so those are some of the, the neurological um, symptoms associated um, the general nervous system with Lyme disease. Now, you know, for our listeners and our attendees, there, are there any actual research out there to support Lyme disease and the connection with other, with neurological conditions? Oh, you bet. Because, you know, the late stage neurocognitive Lyme, they have a lot of research showing how it looks like, or it's associated with progressive dementia and seizure disorders. It can mimic, you know, some people can have vascular issues and have like stroke symptoms, um, ALS features. And ALS is a very debilitating disease, but we have seen cases with late stage neurological Lyme mimicking that and um, multiple sclerosis. And I'm a researcher at heart. You know, I spent time at NIH. So when I got into this field, especially since I was treating something that was clinical, I wanted to make sure I had things that could back it up. Um, and these are just a few articles I'll show you briefly. This one was fascinating and a game changer in our Lyme community because it showed, um, it's over nine presentations that show dementia or Alzheimer's presentations with Lyme disease. And actually one of the studies looked at Borrelia in the brain and then Alzheimer's um, plaques, which I thought was, was fascinating. And there's also been studies showing Lyme Borrelia burgdorferi specifically um, with associated with multiple sclerosis, even 18 publications um, there. So, so yeah, and then the ALS papers where this presentation, it showed that three out of the 24 patients here diagnosed with ALS um, actually improved with IV antibiotics. Hmm. And, wow. and this is just information showing how it's, you know, psychiatric connection as well. So, um... How does Lyme kind of impact a person's mood? In so many different ways. And that's why I love the fact that um, I work here at the Amen Clinics around the country because I think I work with some of the smartest psychiatrists I know. And the reason I first started working with the Amen Clinic was because the chief psychiatrist at the time, about 11 years ago, their daughter actually had Lyme disease, but had failed numerous, numerous medications. And um, she was sent to the practice where I was working at that time. And they tested, was tested for Lyme disease and was, and was found to be positive for Lyme disease. And after she underwent treatment, the psychiatric symptoms got better as well. And, and that's what I see here as I work with so many patients. It's like a lot of, it's such a stigma at times to really talk about neuropsychiatric Lyme because so many patients who have been suffering with chronic Lyme get told to see psychiatrists. 
You know, they get dismissed by their providers. But I always tell patients, we're not saying that you have a psychiatric condition. We have information and research that shows Lyme can actually cause psychiatric symptoms. And, you know, they present all types of ways. You can have mood swings, OCD, paranoia, just depression and anxiety, um, ADD, ADHD. Um, I have patients and that, and that can be their primary presentation. ADD, ADHD, no joint pain, no Bell's palsy, um, unusual depression that doesn't respond to meds, having rage or even substance abuse. And like I said, it's because it's an actual process that occurs in the brain and Lyme disease causes your brain to produce toxins that can cause, contribute to some of these, you know, neurological and psychiatric features, which is fascinating. So Dr. Cornish, you know, this is interesting. So what would you say to parents out there or what should they consider when they notice some mood changes in their kids? Well, they definitely should think of, you know, tick-borne illness because it is very, very prevalent among the pediatric population. And um, also something called PANDAS or PANS, which is another thing that I specialize in. Um, and it stands for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Diseases, and it can be associated with just chronic strep throat or other symptoms. And these cases are so severe. It's like the child goes to bed, Jay, the next morning, they're completely different. And it, when it relates to strep throat, it's usually my, my pediatric patients who have recurrent strep and fevers. And after one of those sore throat exposure, I mean, exposures to strep the next morning, the kid wakes up with OCD, severe OCD, and then it progresses into like, you know, kind of defiance and anger, a lot of panic attacks. Um, I typically see kids then regressing in their behaviors, kids who were potty trained, now, you know, going backwards and bedwetting, kids who could write perfectly and were performing great at school, they then take steps backward and have regression, um, loss of different skills, and, and, and they go on antibiotics at times, and sometimes they can have positive results. And then if you do digging and you find that there are other infections like Lyme disease um, or other viruses or, you know, flu and, and, and more, um, these kids get better, you know, but you don't want to ignore that. So if you're a parent and your kid just, especially with this disorder, they wake up and they're a new kid, you know, they have an infection, they wake up and you're like, who is this? And they start presenting with some of these psychiatric features that I reported, that's concerning. And that should be on the radar. You know, another thing I always hear um, at the pharmacy or, you know, that patients state um, that they feel worse with Lyme treatment before they feel better. Can you explain to our listeners about this and a certain reaction that um, always happens? Okay. 
And, and that's what you call the, the Herxheimer response um, by um, Jared Herxheimer. And what the initial um, presentation showed was that these patients had syphilis and they were, be, they were given antibiotics, penicillin, and they started to have worsening fevers and chills and among other symptoms. And the most common wrong answer on any medical board um, question, um, testing is that you that patient is having an allergic reaction to the antibiotic. But what in fact happens is what you call a die-off reaction. Now syphilis, where this was first discovered, it has the same kind of shape, like a squiggle shape, what's called a spirochete as Borrelia, Borrelia burgdorferi. And when we find that when we're treating patients with all types of tick-borne diseases, if they have a high level of active infection and then you treat them, they can have this kind of a die-off reaction. So they start feeling worse before you feel better. So you may have presented with a little joint pain and fatigue and nerve issues and or especially with the psychiatric manifestations, some mood changes, and then boom, you take your meds that kill off the infection, they die, those organisms die, and then all of a sudden you have more and more inflammation and that makes your symptoms much worse. And then I have patients who say, oh, wow, I feel worse on treatment. Why is that? Is treatment failing? And that's just when you focus on what we call getting that junk out, getting those toxins out and, and detoxing. So that's why in my program, when I'm treating patients, I really educate that not only is it important to treat these infectious organisms, your body needs to simultaneously be able to detox so that you can kind of prevent this reaction from occurring. And you wanna also make sure when you're treating patients that sometimes you may have to see where they are and, and start slower. So when doctors say, oh, this is my only protocol, well, there isn't a quote unquote black and white line protocol. You have to individually tailor this to meet that patient's needs. Cause that patient who perks on one drop of one herbal because they have multiple chemical sensitivity. So I can't put them on the same protocol as patient B who may be able to tolerate higher dosages. So you really monitor for this worsening Herxheimer reaction. And more importantly, you make sure you know how to remove those toxins out um, so that you feel better. Because the purpose of treatment is not to suffer. It really isn't. Now, you know, um, something unique to your clinic is that you perform brain imaging, brain imaging studies uh, since you've joined uh, the Amen Clinics, uh, do you have you seen a pattern associated with uh, with Lyme disease and these brain scans? That's one thing I'm so um, fascinated by um, with what we do here at the clinic, and that's probably because I was a neuroscience major in undergrad. And I've always loved the brain, and it's so interesting um, to learn about what the differences are you can find with these scans, like you said. So before I talk about the, the different features, let me just explain to our audience what SPECT technology is. And SPECT technology is very easy to understand. It looks at areas of the brain 
that might be working well, that's not working hard enough, or areas that might work too hard. So it's kind of like getting under a machine. Um, if you've ever seen any type of bed for MRI, had any imaging at the hospital, but it then does brain skimaging, brain imaging. And it's called SPEC, which stands for Single Proton Emissions Computed Tomography. Say that five times fast. <laughs> so the one thing it looks at with our 20 year plus years of research and over 100,000 studies um, that have been done at the Amen Clinic, it looks at brain flow and activity. Um, so Lyme, so what we see on SPEC scan, some patients surprisingly enough have healthy looking brains. But then you have that 75% of patients that have this global um, hypoperfusion is what we call, which means that there's just decreased blood flow um, and low brain activity. And you can also see something we call scalloping, which is bumpiness on the surface. And the brain just looks toxic um, and unhealthy. But just know that these patterns that we see on the brain imaging are not specific just for Lyme disease. We see scalloping and other infections as well, like viruses and HIV AIDS. Um, but we can also see changes and monitor the extent of inflammation, um, especially with herxing. Like I've seen brain scan imaging of patients who are actively herxing, presenting with worsening symptoms and I was amazed about how much difference the Herxheimer reaction had on the brain scan. Um, and you see patterns that you would see with other illnesses like Alzheimer's or dementia or even strokes. So I want our audience to understand that when you do brain spec imaging, it does not give you the answer. So we don't have a brain image that we can say, this is definitive line, this is mm -hmm. it. But it does help us know what questions to answer because after the years of research um, that, the, that Dr. Amen has done and all the work of all the psychiatrists I'm lucky enough to work with, they know what questions to ask and then they'll send them to one of uh, the functional medicine doctors into my office for further evaluation. So this is what a healthy spec scan looks like. You know, you see it's kind of even. We're going to make it simple. We're not going to go into too much detail, but it looks nice and full and symmetric. As we said earlier, spec scans explain how blood flow, you know, so this is looking, if you look underneath the brain at the top, the top of the brain here. Um, so, you know, this is something healthy. And I want you to think of this image as we see what Lyme disease looks like. So this is an example of that same, what we call surface scan of a patient who had Lyme disease. Wow. So you can definitely tell there's some significant differences. Um, especially, remember earlier I said there's that bumpiness or what we call scalloping on the top. And then this, what we call prefrontal cortex. This is not showing this person does not have holes in their brain, just for all our audience. It just means that there are areas where there's decreased blood flow and activity and um, looking at Alzheimer's. So that definitely looks toxic, but that's the brilliant of looking at someone's brain. You know, Dr. Amen says all the time, how do you know unless you look? 
And that's what we do with spread imaging is we look. Wow. Well, we sure have packed in a lot of information in this short period of time, Dr. Cornish, and many of our listeners will want to reach out to you and ask you some more questions. How can someone get in touch with you? All right. So um, here at our Amen Clinic in Reston, we provide what we call comprehensive clinical management. So not only do we have the benefit of serving local patients here in the DMV area, but because of um, multiple state licensure, we have the ability to practice and treat patients who are suffering from tick-borne illnesses in other states as well and in a very comprehensive manner. So we do telemedicine and we also have inpatient visits. So at our clinic, what makes it unique is that we have an entire clinical team. So we have exam rooms and we have, you know, vital signs that are checked. We have a clinical nurse team that also provides infusions in our office as a part of our comprehensive clinical assessment. So we do things like glutathione and normal saline, vitamin C. And in some cases, we even do IV antibiotics in our clinic. We also have the ability of a newly diagnosed Lyme patient. If they didn't want to just get managed via telemedicine, no matter what state, if they're in a state um, where we are licensed, where I'm licensed, they can visit our office, or even if they aren't, and have a clinical examination if they desire, take care and take advantage of our um, ancillary services, and actually start Lyme treatment um, under the guidance you know, of a, of a bee and my, my clinical team, and then are able to go back and continue management with um, telemedicine. And we also have nutritionists on site. I do a lot of nutritional counseling myself. Well, we have an in-house nutritionist and we have um, a soft shell hyperbaric oxygen um, therapy that we don't use for the treatment of Lyme, but we use for other methods like detox and, and brain healing. So that's just one wonderful thing about our clinic is that we have that comprehensive um, model in place to really allow for us to carefully manage patients from all around the country um, who suffer from these chronic and which could be debilitating you know, illnesses. Because I have my license somewhere in the South in some states like Georgia and Tennessee and Florida. And they're told, oh, Lyme doesn't exist here. You know, in so many of the states where I'm licensed, oh, there's no Lyme in Georgia. There's no Lyme in Ohio. There, no, it's everywhere. So that's one of the things that, you know, we really put a lot of stock in is trying to serve as many patients as possible um, who are suffering in states where they can't find treatment. And um, this is our, our contact information. If you wanted more um, information on our services, just to get follow-up for me, um, or learn anything, expect imaging, anything we're doing here at the Amen Clinic, you feel free to call us at um, 703-880-4000. And we're located in Reston, Virginia. So that's how you get in touch. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Dr. Cornish, uh, for this episode and talking to us such in depth about unlocking the mysteries of Lyme disease. Um, 
I'd like to tell uh, share with everyone that everything discussed on this episode is for informational purposes only, not for diagnosis or treatment. Uh, thank you for tuning in to the Compounding Center Connections. We hope you found the information presented today to be helpful to you or someone you know. If you have any comments or questions, please, free, please feel free to reach out to me at, compound, at j at compoundingcenter.com. Thank you. Thank you.